0: Hello and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket.
1: Richard Pittman will be 80 on the 21st of January. The former National Hunt jockey of the 1960s and 1970s, who was part of the BBC horse racing team for 37 years, has been a popular and regular guest on The Paddock and the Pavilion since I first spoke to him in December 2020, ahead of one of his favourite races, the King George VI Chase at Kempton. So I thought it was only right to celebrate the Cheltenham Boys' special day. As well as clips from previous shows, You Can Never Tire of Richard's stories, I've spoken to several friends and colleagues from his racing days for their thoughts on this special occasion. In this podcast, you'll be joined by former jockey, and now world-famous sculptor Philip Blacker, Newmarket trainer Gay Kellaway, whose father Paul rode with Richard at Fred Winter's Yard in the 1960s and 1970s, young racing journalist Sam Martin, writer Tanya Kindersley, who is part of the charity Horseback UK, and the 1980 Grand National winning jockey Charlie Fenwick. Author and racing historian Chris Pitt is also on hand to fill in any gaps about his riding career. If you love racing, you are in for a treat. Let's hear how Richard first found his way to Cheltenham Races. Do you recall when you first went to the race course?
2: Oh, yes, very, very clearly. Um, I used to play truant. I used to go to school seven miles away at Tewkesbury, in the grammar school there. And whenever it was Cheltenham Races, I would... Uh, have my school clothes on and I'd have my racing clothes in my little satchel. And I used to change up the road about 100 yards away in the middle of an old burnt out oak tree. So I would leave my school clothes in my bag hanging in the oak tree while I climbed over the fields, uh, about three fields, over the, the railway, which was in use at the time. And I'd sit quietly in the inside of the, uh, the wings of the fence at the top of the hill and wait and then see the action. So, yes, from about the age of 11, I used to go to Cheltenham and watch the action. It
1: was so exciting. And how did his riding career start? Not very well, as Richard will now explain. His first ride came in September 1961.
2: I didn't have an early influence because I failed nine O levels at Chooksbury Grammar School. What does a small person person who can ride, what do you do? So I I went in and just, it was a job. Funny enough, my brother-in-law was a jockey um, at that time. And I didn't look up to him. It was just a job. And then it took four years, Stephen, before I rode a winner. Four years of actually having a license.
1: I was going to ask you about your first ride, actually. Um, Do you remember the horse? Oh,
2: yeah, Rosaggio, I think it was, at uh, Hereford. Um, I looked like an agricultural worker, and I didn't improve much through my career. But anyway, the, the point was, I just, it was a job, that was all. And funnily enough, during my time, this was at Cheltenham, Woodman Cote, near Cheltenham, uh, there were quite a few trainers then, used to train up on Cleve Hill 10. Uh, David Nibbleson's father, Frenchie, was one of them as I say, rode for these four years without a winner from 60 rides. It was quite embarrassing. Yeah, I and was my... going, to,
1: going to say that. You, you've actually taken the words <laughs> out of my mouth because I, I read where it said uh, in the Sporting Life, Pittman rides winner at 60th attempt. You must yes. have been relieved to get a winner.
2: <laughs> uh, you wouldn't believe the... I, I was filling up petrol somewhere. And uh, the, the attendant said, oh, I know you. And I said, well, I don't know how you know. Oh, yeah, you're you're the jockey you can't ride a winner. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but m- my thinking, Stephen, was wrong. I thought if I stayed in these small stables, you'd get rides. But, of course, although you get rides, you get the horse with one eye and three bad legs. And the moment they've got one good enough, in comes the proper jockey, you see.
1: Richard's career changed for the better in 1964 when he joined former National Hunt champion jockey Fred Winter, who was about to start training in Lambourne.
2: So then I, when I understood Fred Winter was going to retire that season, I asked him, could I join him? He said, yeah, I've watched you ride. You're OK. You're, you're, you'll never be champion jockey, but you're OK and you're honest and horses jump better for you than they do for a lot of people. So come and join me and um, we'll see how we go. So (laughs) I got a letter in May, I suppose, and it said, uh, Dear Pittman, um, if you still wish to join me, I want to see you here on June the 1st. We don't have any accommodation at the moment. But I have a very good um, hut at the tennis court where we keep stuff. And it's June, so it'll be warm. I think it'll be fine for a while. So, I mean, that was the start of my career with Fred Winter in his tennis hut.
1: What a great opportunity to start with Fred Winter, the former champion jockey legend, really.
2: Well, I, I went to him because I knew that he would be successful. He was such a strong man with great connections, And we only had six horses when I joined him the first week. Three of us were there, uh, but they quickly grew because he had a winner straight away. Uh, Jay Trump, who went on to win the National in his first year, was uh, a winner. They say it was his first runner. Actually, wasn't. I went off 10 minutes earlier at Ludlow on a horse called 177, who Fred couldn't. He was the only one who could ride him at home because he pulled so hard. And so I tootle off to Ludlow. Uh, and Tommy Smith, the American amateur, went to Sandown for James Trump. And uh, Fred said to me, you won't hold this horse. You can't hold him at home. You won't hold him in a race. So what I want you to do is at the starting tape, face the opposite way to the way the horses are going to go. And then when the tapes go up, turn round and follow go. him behind. Well... We did that, and what, he, I couldn't hold him, 14 runners. He burst his way through the field, quickly round the first bend at Ludlow, is a fence. He saw the fence and went, yahoo, and stood off so far. You know, I'd never ridden anything of this class. And he pulled me out of the saddle, because I hadn't slipped the reins, and he pulled me out like a stone out of a catapult. And I landed running in front of him. I landed on the other side when he was still jumping the fence. It was quite incredible, I got a real kicking, um, And when I got home, Fred said, well, you, you learn by your mistakes, you won't get a ride, another ride for three months. So that's how you learn. So people who think that Jay Trump was his first runner, are incorrect, I was his, on his first runner, 177, but it ended only about 30 seconds after it
1: started. Wouldn't you love to see a video of Richard riding 177 at Ludlow? And I wonder how long he lived in Fred's Tennis Hut. One young jockey who remembers meeting Richard in those early days was Philip Blacker. Can you remember the first time you met Richard? I
3: can actually, yes. Um, I can remember it very well. Uh, I was working for, I just started in racing and I was working for Captain Tim Forster. And um, I was sharing digs with Graham Thorner in Letcom Regis. And we were going to the races. I don't know why I was going to the races, because I don't think I had any rides in those days. I was an 18-year-old amateur rider. And anyway, I think we were heading off down to Plumpton. And we gave Richard Pittman a a lift um, to Plumpton. I always thought. I, I remember thinking, what a nice chap he was, and um, and because uh, professional jockeys could in those days anyway, professional jockeys could be a bit a, a bit aloof with sort of green amateurs like me, and he was particularly nice. Um, and then the next time, I didn't see him for a long time after that until maybe a year or so later when I had moved to. Uh, Major Verley Buick, um, who, who trained near Didcot. And I was trying to get some rides from him and I was working for him. And Richard Pittman was uh, was first jockey. And so uh, I met him again then. So that, that, that those are the first two occasions, as far as I can remember.
1: The day in the life of a jockey was very different in Richard's day. And in this clip, he describes the various challenges they all faced.
2: Weight issues are the killer, really. The riding is the good. Every jockey will tell you the riding is is the best part of the job. The travelling, you know, you're poor. You haven't ridden. I hadn't ridden Winners. I got a mini. You had to bump start it to get it going in the morning, you know, that sort of thing. So driving to all these far-fung places was not good. The wasting was awful. And in my day, you could, it was not banned then, but it has been for years, a pill called Lasix, which they give to horses in America to stop them bleeding. Mm. But Lasix is a diuretic. And uh, it just makes you go to the loo for two and a half hours and you are losing all the fluid from your body. But the side effect of that is that you get cramp in all your extremities, your elbows, your shoulders, your hips, your knees, you get cramp. And the other thing is you could hear yourself speaking not round and through your ear, but booming inside your head. Terrible stuff. But you could lose seven or eight pounds. And the first pill I ever took from a fit, you looking at me now, you'd never think it, but from a fit, hard, athletic body, I lost 11 pounds in wee. I mean, that is just terrible. Of course, it's banned, but not a nice, you know, not a nice thing to do when you're doing a physical job. But Stephen... Adrenaline is a great thing. We've all ridden in those days with broken bones. You know, you break your left wrist and you'd show your right one to the doctor and say, no, it's fine. And you'd have a broken left wrist and go ride. You could do those things. Happily, the game has changed. I mean, also when I started, they were just little cork helmets with no chin straps or anything. And if you hit a fence hard, the cork helmet would fly out in front of the jockey. They were of no use whatsoever, and no back pads or anything like that. John Franklin's mother, Lil, uh, loved him dearly as all mothers do, and she invented the back pad by sewing bits of cut-out polystyrene on a vest for him. Quite ingenious, but anyway, I, I'm digressing. And uh, so, yes, the the travelling was 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 hard. The wasting was awful, and the injuries, were they came. You knew they would, but you you didn't expect it to be today. You see. So we all rode and loved it. The camaraderie of being a jockey was fantastic. You can imagine with the great blonde bombshell Biddlecombe in the weighing room, you know, and and his great mate Josh Gifford. It, it was a magical place to be.
1: By the start of the 1970s, Richard was now riding for the most powerful jumping yard in the country. Fred Winter was champion trainer for the first time in the 1970-71 season, and won the title for the next four seasons. And moving on to the, your golden years between 1970 and 1975, when you rode some sort of legendary horses: Bula, Pendle, Lanzarotti, Crisp, uh, Galini. What was it like riding those horses at the peak of your powers?
2: I'm not sure I ever had a peak of my powers, <laughs> but uh, I had a good five years when we had we had those good horses, and we would we mentioned Kempton earlier on, we would go to Kempton and Sandown, Newbury. We'd have a double every weekend, and uh, both Pendle and Lanzarotti wrapped up eleven wins in a row each, and most of those were around Kempton. They loved Kempton Park. It, there was pressure, but they were good jumping horses on the whole. I only rode Bueller in one hurdle race and then his following year in novice chases where he won four of his five and fell in the other one. He was an electric horse. Not a very good horse to work at home, but the moment you showed him an obstacle, wow, didn't he wake up. Paul Kellaway rode him to win his two uh, champion hurdles and John Franklin took him over after um, his novice chase years. Pendle was incredible. When we first schooled him over fences, he was only a cheap buy, 3000 quid, uh, one one small hurdle race at Catrick. When we put him over steeplechase fences at home, we went over the three horse fences at Lambourn, brilliant. And Fred Winter said, I've seen enough, take him home. I said, "Well, don't you want to see if it was a fluke?" He said, "No. I know a good horse when I see one. Take him home. He is brilliant. And he was, always. And as I said to you about the the photograph there, he could stand off outside the wings and get just as easily the other side. It wasn't an effort to him at all. Crisp was the most amazing horse. He was big, strong, muscular, pulled hard, jumped from the front, superb. I mean, the ride he gave me in the Grand Ashen 73 was... A memory I'll take to my grave. Uh, a great horse, and both he and Pendle beat Tingle Creek. You know, uh, uh, different tracks, um, getting course records. Uh, he, they were very, very good horses. Lanzarotti was a former flat horse, won the Champion Hurdle. He wasn't as good as Comedy of Errors. Comedy of Errors beat him most times, but we did outfox him to win the seventy-four. Champion hurdle. We talked about it, and I said his only weakness, uh, cognitive Veras, was to go out right handed when he's under pressure. And Fred Winter said, Right, make it a stamina race then, we'll put a pacemaker in. And we put in one called Calzado, ridden by the Earl of Harrington's second son, DC Stano, to make it a fast pace, you see, and put cognitive errors under pressure. And blow me, Calzado made the run into the first and then stopped. So, <laughs> I, I had to make a quick decision, right, what do we do here? And the decision was, the plan was to put him under pressure, let's do so. So I kicked on from about the second hurdle, which was being the donkey, really, but it worked. So coming down the hill, Comedy of Errors jumped right twice, and we won by length, a couple of lengths. So the plan worked, but he wasn't quite as good as Pendulum Crisp. And Killiney, who you mentioned, most people wouldn't know him now, won nine of his ten, won at the Cheltenham Festival, the, the RSA, um, the, the Novices Gold Cup. And then we ran him oh, three weeks later at Ascot, and he, he had a fall and broke his shoulder. And I was knocked out. And I thought in my mind when I came round that I'd seen him standing on his feet. And I was still in the ambulance room lying on the little bed there. When his owner came in, it was her first horse. And he was such a good horse. You know, he could have been anything. And when she told me that that he died, I burst out crying. Now for a grown man to be crying is embarrassing, but it was the emotion of the whole thing. Anyway, she picked me up on this little truckled bed with one hand and sat <laughs> my face with the other. She said, like, how can I have horses if you fall apart like this? Anyway, off she went and uh, came back later and apologized and, and gave me a very nice present. She said, I was so upset myself, and see you upset, you know. And, and she gave me a very handsome little present to take the wife out to supper. So Kelini could have been anything, Stephen. He, in fact, was making a whistle noise as, as he exhaled, which indicated soft palate or some breathing malfunction. And we were going to operate on his breathing that um, that that summer well if he was as good as that when he was wrong in the in the respiratory oh. area how good could he have been we'll
1: never know probably the best horse that richard rode was pendle who he rode to victory in the 1972 and 1973 king George the sixth chase but did he stay the three and a quarter miles of the cheltenham gold cup
2: very good horse Now, everybody seems to think he didn't stay the three and a quarter miles of the Gold Cup and he was just a three-mile of the King George, and and that is not true. He had this little quirk that when he was in front, he'd pull up underneath you. And, you know, it was embarrassing. He needed company. And both King Georges, we won easily. So I was keeping hold of his head and squeezing him all the time. And there was so much more in the tank, even though he won easily. And it looked as if, well, I could sprint anywhere, but he was not dying underneath me, but he was always just coming back. It's a horrible position to be in, but he was just king at that time. Pendle in 73, odds-on favourite. And we talked about tactics. I wanted to come after the last, because he was a funny little horse when he hit the front. And Fred Winter, who'd won several gold cups as a... Rider said no Richard if you miss the last in a competitive gold cup you won't get back I'd rather you got beaten from being there too soon well how prophetic was that I hit the front two out went to the last three clear and the roar of the cl- crowd and the color of people and throwing hats in the air And poor old Pendle ooh, pricked his ears and stopped momentarily oh but enough to lose his stride the dickler came past him Pendle fought back Short head was the distance. A stride later, I'm half a length clear. So it was an important race, and I don't mind talking about it. The next year, he was favorite again, Pendle. And Fred Winter said, do what you like, hold him up this time. And coming down the hill, he was running away, you know, as if he'd just started the race. And I pulled him in behind High Ken, who wasn't a great jumper, going to the second last, because I didn't want to hit the front. But as I pulled in behind, the dickler and Captain Christie have come up on my outer specifically to hem me in. That's riding, race riding. Heiken fell, brought Pendle down, end of that story. He should have won two Gold Cups. But just an aside and a quick one, um, the lad who did him in the paddock said, get this horse withdrawn. I said, you you can't, he's favourite. He said, no, no, there's a threat, an IRA threat to have him shot if he hits the front. Now, whether it was IRA or who or what, but he'd been sleeping with that horse for 10 days and then working all through the day. He, he, a jockey cannot get a horse withdrawn. Starter vets get them withdrawn. And um, when it went down, of course, both Fred Winter and the lad thought the horse had been shot. And I came in and said to Terry Biddleham, story. He said, that wasn't very fair. I said, no, it wasn't, was it? No, they could have missed
1: you and got me. Sixteen days after finishing second in the nineteen seventy three Cheltenham Gold Cup on Pendle, Richard was on board Crisp in the race he will always be remembered for—the nineteen seventy three Grand National. Um, but firstly, why why would a a horse that won the Champion Chase by twenty five lengths even be entered for the Grand National? You know? Well, in between winning
2: the the champion chase so easily that he was tried. Fred Winter thought he'd be a Gold Cup horse. And we tried that route. He Actually, I held him up, as you would a two-miler in a three-and-a-quarter-mile race, and he, he sulked. He didn't like it. You know, his natural exuberance and and character was front-running and bold jumping And we were bang there at the last, but finished fifth and, you know, just wasn't good enough on the day. But to me, it sulked and we'd taken away his character. So we talked about the national and Fred said, well, what you would normally do, he had 12 stone. There were gold cup winners in it. Lescargo was in it. He had nearly the same weight. Uh, he said, you would drop him out last of the 40, go around and switch him off. But he said, you won't get round. He is so bold jumping that You will jump on the back of another horse, you'll end up on the floor, and you can't win if you fall. So he said, We'll make the running on the inside, save a lot of ground, and try and settle the pace of the race down. Because quite often, I was a senior jockey at the time, a, a race can be dominated from the front by a senior jockey. If he slows it down, the others are quite content to do that. Well, that was the theory. In practice, he saw the first fence and wow most incredible feeling. He would quicken of his own volition. I, I never had to see a stride on him because he saw his own stride and would be airborne. And he was never running away with me. I mean, obviously, I got a lot of criticism. People said he ran away with me. Never was he out of control at all. It was his speed quickening into the fence, going Low and fast over it, and landing, galloping, you know he was galloping before he even hit the ground. So each fence and you know, there are 30 of them, he was gaining a lot of ground. And the only other horse upsides me was Grace Sombrero on the wide outside, little Schumach riding, and uh, he fell at the chair, which then let that's the fifteenth, which left me well clear. And to go out onto that second circuit, Stephen, normally it, the noise is tremendous from the horses around you. You had nothing. And there was nothing. It was silent and eerie. And and as I faced down to what would have been the first fence on first time round, hole in the fence, a few jockeys standing there watching, you know who'd fallen early on, one of them was leaning on the rail holding a bridle. So when he'd come off his horse, he'd gone up the neck and taken the bridle off the horse. No horse, he's just holding a bridle. <laughs> so it was quite eerie. And in those days, the public address system went all the way around the course. And I could hear Michael O'Hare quite clearly. Had a great voice, you know, very rich Irish voice. Good, great commentator. Um, and we jumped away down to beaches, just in silence. I'm listening to the commentary. And we got to Beechers and he flew it. Now, in those days, the drop was big. And most horses, to to balance themselves, their nose would nearly or quite often hit the ground. So you had to slip your reins and get your body weight back on the horse's backside to act as ballast to keep him, you know, keep his bottom down. Because once their tail comes past their head, you are in trouble. So. Chris never even nodded at Beecher's Brook because he jumped so far over it that he sort of flattened out the drop, if you see. He was the most amazing horse and he did it both times. And at the canal turn, because I was so far clear, oh, sorry, just go back a minute. I could hear Michael O'Hare as I went to Beecher's saying, and Dick Pittman's 25, let clear, he's going away <laughs> from the
4: pack, and the pack is led by Red Robin, Fletcher is kicking Red Robin.
2: I thought, that'll do for me then, if he's having a kick, you know. Yeah. And then, oh, just before the next fence, David Nicholson is sitting on, I, I can't remember the horse, net or something. He was sitting there like an Indian chief with his arms folded on the horse's back, and the horse was eating grass, and he said quite clearly, Richard, you're actually 33 and a half lengths clear. Kick on and you'll win. Well, he spoke like that. We used to call him the Duke, you know, amongst us uneducated yeah. fellows, The Duke was educated. Yeah. Um, and I thought, no, kicking on is the last thing I have to do. Stamina is in doubt. I've got to hold his head. But for the canal turn, which, as you know, is a right angle jump, I was able, because I was on my own, to move out and cut across the corner, almost touching the flag on the corner and saving lengths he was absolutely brilliant there but you can then see the grandstands for the first time but they're three quarters of a mile away it's still a long long way so keep hold keep hold keep hold and i i, I never heard another horse until going to the second last fence which is on the racecourse proper and i could hear on the firm ground the hoof beats, the drum, 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 drum. And the horse was red rum, and he exhaled, his nostrils flapped, which did a... There aren't many that do that. It's called high blowing. So I could hear drum, drum, getting louder and louder. And it's like when you're a kid and you're having nightmares and you're walking in treacle and the bogeyman's following you. You can't get out of it. It was a horrible feeling, but I was still so far clear, that I, I hoped that I would hang on, but all of a sudden, like your car, running out of petrol, phew, so at the second last, the warning signs were there, mm. and he was a good moving horse, you could see his legs going out in front of him, and his legs were even going sideways slightly, you know, with tiredness, and he had loppy ears like that, like that, like that. and even his ears went... Now, when you have lost the strength out of your ears, you have got to the bottom of the barrel. And, and so it became agonizing. And then I made a boyish mistake, which I live with, and I would hold my hands up. I lost Fred Winter, the national, through take, picking my stick up to wake him up. And I picked it up in my right hand when I had to go right-handed to get round the elbow on the run-in. And the moment I, a big, strong, very heavy horse, when I took my hand off to give him a crack, phew, he died away from me. You so see, because I t- taken uh, taken away the rudder. If you see, I should have stayed riding hands, and he holding him together, and got round the elbow. So as I as he dropped away, I've had to sit down, pull him back, and I was still I don't know three four lengths clear at the elbow, halfway up the running, and Brian Fletcher very cleverly challenged wide and and the reason that he did that if he challenged close to me it energy re-energizes a horse to find a bit more and remember it was only two strides from the winning post that Red Rum actually caught him so I, I that was a race I lost that I should have won and it was a big big one that got away Fred Winter was a gentleman. The owners of Justin Manifold took it well. They said, you did your best. In inverted commas, it wasn't good enough. But they were absolutely brilliant. If I'd have trained the horse and someone else had done what I'd done, I'd have pulled them off and kicked their backside. But I have to live without Stephen.
1: Philip Blacker gives his thoughts on that famous race. And is he too hard on himself when he talks about Crisp and the 1973 Grand National?
3: Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt, um, he couldn't have done anything else, really, because the horse sort of was bounding from fence to fence and he couldn't really do anything else. And, of course, on the run-in, the the horse was drunk. He was absolutely exhausted. And Richard always feels that he probably could have done something else, but he couldn't. The horse was just um, at reach, he was completely knackered. So I don't think Richard did anything wrong at all. You know, I rode in that race and it was—I finished fourth on Spanish Steps, and uh, I was—I was never on the bridle, and I was on a on a really classy horse. You know, I was never on the bridle. I was—I was—I finished fourth, but I was bitterly disappointed because I thought I was going to win before the race. But uh, it was a it was a hell of a race.
1: Has there ever been a better first four past the post than Red Rum? Crisp, Lescargo and Spanish Steps. Richard retired from riding on the 31st of May 1975 and in our next clips Philip Blacker gives his jockey's verdict on Richard's qualities in the saddle while Tanya Kindersley, daughter of former jockey and trainer Gay Kindersley, gives her views on what Richard represented as a jockey in the 1960s and 1970s. What do you think were his qualities as a jockey? Well, he would say he hadn't got any. <laughs> In fact, the other day,
3: it was only the other day when we met at some event and he we were discussing jockeyship and he would say he'd said to me, he said to me, You were a very good jockey, you know. I was useless. You were... <laughs> which is ridiculous because he was so successful. And you know, if he wasn't if he wasn't much good, Fred Winter wouldn't have employed him. <laughs> But uh, he was um, his best qualities were probably he was very he had a good racing brain uh, and he, he he sort of was always aware of what of what was going on in a race.
0: The thing about somebody like Richard Pittman is he's not just Richard Pittman. You know, he was an extraordinarily talented jockey in his own right a really nice person to deal with, always smiling, always sunny. But now for people in my generation, I'm in my 50s, he represents a kind of jockey, which we oldies think don't really exist anymore. So he represents a type of jockey. um, And I'm not saying better or worse, good or bad, different from what we see now so he he was part of my father's generation where just little things that make me smile you know they'd ride a three and a half mile chase wearing a polar neck jumper <laughs> that was, that was, they didn't have silks in the winter jump jockeys they they wore jumpers and uh, there was none of this going to the gym to get fit. You know, some of them would run a bit, but most of them would go dancing, and then go sweat it all off in the in the steam baths in German Street, and then get in the car and drive off to Sandown or Kempton or Ascot, or wherever it was. And That was the kind of thing my dad used to do, uh, and it was just it was wild. It was a lot less professional, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, these were brilliant jockeys who did extraordinary things. You think of what Fred Winter did without a bridle. I mean, they could do extraordinary things. But I mean, as in there just wasn't that. OK, I'm going to say something radical. I'm not sure they thought of it like a job. I think they thought of it as a passion. It was, a, it was a love. It was, for some of them, an obsession. And there is something rather lovely about that. And it may be that one looks back at my age and you think every summer was sunny. But when I look at the Richard Pittmans of this world, and I just, there was a, there was a buccaneering spirit, I suppose, which I love. And so when you think of somebody who's ridden in all the races he's ridden in and won, um, you know, the trophies he's won and known the horses he's known, he is admirable in his own right and exciting to think of in his own right, but he represents that generation which just was a little bit different.
1: And I love that because I'm an old fogey. So let's hear the details of Richard's riding career from author and racing historian Chris Pitt.
5: Well, Richard's riding career pretty much coincided with when I first got interested in racing and these guys who went round uh, were my heroes. And I've got a scrapbook picture of Richard riding his first winner on Indian Spice at Fontwell Park, jumping the last fence with a horse called Rom Club. And right at the very end of Richard's career, when he had his last ride on St. Swithin at Stratford in the two-mile-six furlong Handicap chase there. I was stood right by the last fence and I still remember to this day Richard in those green collars on since within inspecting the last fence as I called out to him, good luck, Richard, and he acknowledged me and that was great. But an awful lot happened in between those times, of course, and we all know about Pendle and we all know about Crisp and his narrow defeat in the Grand National, which, of course, wasn't the only occasion on which Richard was second in the Grand National because he was also second... On Steel Bridge, four years earlier, in the race won by Highland Wedding, but 400 odd winners later, uh, he retired in '75. And when you look back, he uh, was twice runner-up in the jockeys' table in 1972-73 to Ron Barry with 84 winners, and again the following year, 73-74 with 79, once again to Mr. Barry. Pendle, I suppose, is the horse that um, we remember Richard with. And and he's unfortunately remembered more for not winning the 73 Gold Cup. But for me, I think his greatest performance was in the 73 Massey Ferguson, about nine months after Cheltenham, when carrying 12 stone seven, he beat a pretty useful horse called Helmsman, giving him 34 pounds By according to the form book, very easily one and a half lengths with the Dickler, the horse that had deprived him of the Gold Cup, some 20 lengths back in third place. That was a sort of Arkel-type weight concession. And earlier in the season, he'd won the Benson and Hedges chase, 12 stone three, giving 27 pounds to that year's Mackison Gold Cup winner, Red Candle. I mean, they were terrific performances. And if you look also at Richard's Winning uh, big races, he's won the Whitbread Gold Cup, the Hennessy, the Great Yorkshire Chase, uh, the SGB, the Cathcart. And his first big win came in the 1966 Imperial Cup, a race he won again later on Lanzarote, riding horse for Fred Winter called Royal Sanction. So, Richard, I would like to wish you a very, very happy 80th birthday. Uh, I'm celebrating my big 7-0 later this year, and I hope when in 10 years' time that I'll still look as well and feel as healthy as you. All the very best to you, Richard.
1: Thanks, Chris. You got your birthday wishes in early. Now back to Richard, where he recalls the beginning of his media career with the BBC and what it was like to work with the legendary Peter O'Sullivan. Were you sad to leave the weighing room on that last day at Stratford?
2: Oh yes, but but you know that was the last day of my job. I was onto a new job. I was excited for the new job. So yes, that's the one thing you miss not being able to go back in there. Only jockeys who are riding up to an hour you can go in an hour before racing starts, and then they clear clear the room. Uh, even trainers can't go into the into the jockeys' changing room. Uh, the valets, officials, and jockeys. But it's a place where you've you've broken bones with people, you've, you've helped each other, you've had controversies. So, you know, for 15 years, it's a big, big change. And they'd asked me two years before if I'd join them as Paddock commentator, because Jimmy Lindby was doing it, but didn't want to do the winter. You know, he'd like to go shooting, go to Hong Kong, go to all sorts of things. So uh, I turned it down. I had the five best horses in the country to ride, because I was riding Bueller at the time. I only rode him for one season. Um, so the job was there, but I wouldn't give up the horses for anything. And then two years later, when they offered me the job again, things had changed. John Frankham, who was a boy below me, had come up and was a man now, uh, 10 years younger, patently better. And they offered it to me again. Would it come if I turned it down this time? No. Dead men's shoes. I mean, I, I held it for 35 years.
1: Yeah, so when you started, um, did the jockeys accept you when, you when you started going into the paddock? It, yeah, yeah. I, I was mates
2: with everyone. Um, I can't think of one that, that there was no animosity. You know, you'd have your ups and downs with people over coming up the inner or giving me light or rubbing you against the rail and that sort of thing. But, but no, no, I got on well with them. Well, I'm a personable person. I like people. Um, no animosity whatsoever.
1: That's a good way to start. And did you get a lot of media training as well?
2: Oh, none. Absolutely nil. No. <laughs> uh, but that was a long time ago, you know, 1975, a long time ago. Oh uh, No, in fact, my first day was not long after the last day of, of race riding. Uh, and, you know, you get your teeth kicked out. I, I've actually got a bridge, Nice, well, nice bridge, yeah, bridge, across the gap but at the time I had dentures and awful you know to try and get your words specifically right on some of the horse names with your teeth wobbling around was a bit uh-huh. difficult so um, uh, yeah I know I'm into it straight away you know the only thing you had to adjust to and we had in those days Stephen we had a lot of paddock time you know they'd come to you in the paddock 10 minutes or more before a race, you know, and you, we talk about every horse in, in detail. So the only thing you had to get used to is the producer talking to you in your ear while you are talking live um, and not stopping to think and listen to the producer. You've got to keep going. And several times in the early days, you know, the producer would say, now look, Richard, I've got a shot and I'm going to bring it up in a minute, but keep talking. Don't don't stop talking. Keep talking. Say what you want to say, and when I'm ready, I'll tell you. And so they'd say, "Ah, look, we've got a shot of someone at the parade ring. It's Nubar Gulbenkin the Greek maki, uh, shipping magnate." You know, talk about it. What would I know about it? <laughs> <laughs> but you've got to keep talking, haven't you? You've got to keep talking. Peter was a—I mean—such a hero to go work alongside. And in fact, I've got. a a lovely race card of the one of the last days he he commentated, and all his colours filled in with his notes, which were fascinating. But on the other side of this cardboard thing were pasted on two more smaller races, you know, eight runner field. And by the side of lots of horses down that part of the page were his bets. Bet like, oh, tremendous. He must certainly... Normal punters wouldn't get on the bets he can get on now. I can assure you, but of course, yeah, I suppose if Peter O'Sullivan was having a bet to any bookmaker, it was a come on, come and join me, wasn't it? You know, he wasn't wasting his money. He invited me in and, and said, "Look, Richard, it's it's pr- pretty easy, and you know, I, you know, just talk to the camera when you're on camera as if it's your best friend, not a camera." Which was good. I also said, "Well, what about delivery, Peter?" He said, um, well, Richard, uh, keep talking. That's all I can say, uh, even if it's rubbish, like when you're a jockey, but keep
1: talking. Working for the BBC, the race which Richard will always be connected with was the Grand National, and he was in the thick of the action in 1993 for the Void Race, the race that never was, and four years later for the bomb scare Race. Richard recalls 1993 and 1997
2: the void race, I, I used to do the lead up and the paddock and, and then as soon as they'd left the paddock, I'd hand over and Peter Sullivan would pick up and do the parade. And so I'd been through the mall on the paddock, did a reasonable job and un- loosened, my tie, loosened my tie then and sort of sat back ready for all the action to unfold. And um, void start, oh, bad luck, you know, and then second void start and... Uh, producer shouted in my ear, Pittman, get off your fat backside, only slightly sharper than that, and find out what's happening. Well, we we used to be over right near the, the road into Liverpool itself, and a little scaffolding thing with an office on top of it on on scaffold planks. And I ran out, fell over because they were wet. And I always used to get winded because I am a fat little fellow. Plonk, down I went. And we have floor managers. So the guy picked me up by his hand and he's whizzing through the crowds, knocking people all over the place, with me like an airplane in his hand, you know. And he got me to the start, by which time the whole crowd were around Keith Brown, the then starter, you know, wanting the news. But we're the BBC, we pay the rights, we have we have first call. And, and, and the floor manager knocked everyone out of the way and plonked me up on my feet. And, shoved me there. And I said, now, Keith, uh, you you know, what can happen? He said, I can tell you exactly anything that's fallen on the first circuit or anything that has passed the circuit marker, i.e. jumped the water jump, cannot run again should we run. So good, clear guidance, you know, we were doing a good job, to which a fist came through the camera view and didn't land, but it stopped only an inch from Keith Brown's chin. And it was John Upson who trained the favorite, Zeta slab or some, favorite for the National. And he said, The next time I see you, it'll be in court. <laughs> all all mayhem. Oh, it was terrible. So anyway, I backed out. I'd done my bit. I'd got the news. And I'm walking back across the course, producer again in Pittman, Pittman, you're not finished yet. Find a steward. So, they were all in a porter cabin, four ladders up, a, a scaffold, huge, high, looking straight down the course. And at the bottom was a, I I don't know what sort of guard, you know, big, big beef eater, and a feather in it, and a sword. And and um, I've got a cameraman, Sam, uh, Sam and me. Bottom of the first ladder, he said, "Oh, you can't come here, son. You can't come here. Uh, stewards are up there." I said, "Yes, they've asked us to go up BBC for an interview. They want to tell people what's happening." Of course, they hadn't. So up the ladders, not easy with a camera on the chap's shoulder. Got to the top, very high, and I knocked on the porter cabin door and said to, uh, and went, uh, "Oh, said hello or something. And can you answer the door?" Out came Patrick Hibbert Foy, who was the s- senior stipendary steward. Little tiny chap. Yes, Piven. What do you want? This is Stewards deliberating, talking here. It's uh, private. I said, "I know Patrick, but we're." live into Hong Kong, the world is watching us. We need to know. And he said very superciliously, there are 70,000 people here, and they need to know before any news gets out to anyone else. Goodbye, and slam the door. I mean, it was so wrong. It was wrong. They did, after that, realise that, that, you know, it's such a big event that you have to be media-savvy. And now, of course, Stephen, you see it, there are cameras everywhere, aren't they? You know, mm-hmm. In stalls, on jockeys, here, there, everywhere. It's fantastic the access that they have now. I was on air as it happened, talking about the horses, you see. And all of a sudden, producer again says, Pim and Pim, and there's something happening. Uh, talk about it. They're, they're evacuating the Queen Mother stand, or is it the Princess Royal? Anyway, the Queen Mother, I think, isn't it? They, so shots of them. Everyone going and being put onto the course. Now, how would I know what it was? You know, no one knew. So I said, "Oh well, they're evacuating the Queen Mother stand, and um, I'm sure it's only a fire extinguisher. Someone's being silly. Something's gone off. You know, uh, we'll be back in 20 minutes. I'm sure about that." Anyway, two and a half days later, <laughs> when we went back, and uh, I I switched back you know, to to off air so I could look around and say, "Anyone know what's happening?" No. So I carry on talking. And two Liverpudlian police women came into my little domain, my little hut on the scaffolding, and I switched back off from being live, and I said, "Excuse me, sorry, I, but 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 we're on air." And they came across and lifted me by the elbows and said, "You're not now," and took me out. <laughs> <laughs> but the BBC were brilliant, Stephen. I mean, they. They went back like defending a battle station. You know, they went back to the car park owners and trainers. Des Lineham, held it as long as he could, and everyone else was moved out They It was done with a military precision. But the last person that we had that they couldn't reach or didn't think of reaching was Jim McGrath, Aussie Jim, who was down at the cana- uh, canal between Canal Turn and up upper big scaffolding in his own little little box, chatting away there. And uh, I could hear in the background from the control truck saying, Jim, keep talking, keep talking. We're still here and we'll get other pictures and talk over them when you get them. And he spoke for 24 minutes, you know. He was absolutely brilliant.
1: Richard had another memorable day at Aintree when he rode in the Legends flat race before the 2012 Grand National. Richard takes up the story.
2: I'd given a kidney away 10 weeks before the race, and I wanted to ride in the Legends race. I was sixty nine. I've only got one eye. That eye doesn't work. Uh, again, being kicked in the face, both you know, two two who's in the face. And uh, I wanted to. I wanted to do it. They'd run out of Legends, so there was room for me to, to join the Legends race. And it was the first race of the day, Grand National day. You know, it was great. Mick Kinnan, thirteen times champion jockey. You know. He was in it. Oh, and all the Grand National winning jockeys were there. It was superb. Um, The day when I got there to get ready, the chief medical officer said, look, I'm not going to let you ride. You've only got one eye. You've only just recovered from your kidney. And I'm also working for the Beeb. You know, 17 minutes after the finish of the race, I was to be in my position ready for my first interview. It was a pretty tight schedule. Anyway, um, I couldn't find any boots to fit me. Eventually I stuffed my legs into someone's boots, but my, there was still three inches of flesh out the back. So we just round black tape around it. You see, so I'm, I'm taped up before I'm going out. And um, it, it was a marvelous race. And But before then, the stewards called us in and said, now boys, look, you know, eyes of the world are on you. You know, don't go mad. Play jockeys, you know, don't play soldiers. Blah, blah, blah. And by the way, there is a geriatric, one-eyed person riding in the race. If he's in trouble, give him some light. And they all s- sled biking and said, oh, to hell with him. You know, he can look after himself. There was no camaraderie there, I can show you. But I was also mic'd up. So to comment, commentator, on the way round, and Jim McGrath would drop in every now and again, if you thought it was pertinent. So right from the start, you know, I popped in a little bit behind them and, and I'm saying, Oh, up front, you know, there's so-and-so very Well, and I'd like to be on that one and daddy, daddy, daddy. And I'm talking away all the way around. And then down the back straight, they suddenly realized that I'm talking away to myself. And no one knew I was mic'd up, you see. And uh, they must've thought I was totally mad. Anyway, it finished. It didn't do anything great, but I was 69, one eye, one kidney, only just recovered. I thought it was one of the the most exciting things I'd done. It was a bit of self gratification, wasn't it?
1: And of course, BBC kept losing race courses and uh, finished 2012. That must have been a, a sad day when you finished on the BBC.
2: Yes, it was. It was inevitable, I suppose, because of money. You know, I mean, sky coming up could buy things and other channel four and and then IV saw that it was a great opening we lost it and one fell swoop having been 35 years in it but you know i've been involved even, ever since one way or another you know either doing jobs for entry on the day and entry tv and uh with the virtual grand national i mean what a success that yeah, was you've had a few year. more
1: rides with the virtual grand national yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's still not winning, <laughs> yeah.
2: <but. laughs> yeah, never winning and Chris keeps going further and further back. Yeah, yeah. But you know, so one way or another, I, I've been involved since nineteen sixty seven when I rode Foynavens year and fell at the third.
1: Let's go to our panel to hear what they had to say about Richard's broadcasting career. Uh
4: Richard as a broadcaster was excellent. He he knew his stuff. Um, when everything went wrong, he used to joke, very jokingly go, say something and put it right um he he was very um he wasn't opinionated which was you know nice to be around someone that wasn't so wasn't he wasn't raw you know he used to be very much as as a person you sort of sat next to him on the settee and having a chat over a cup of coffee and that 's the way he was when he broadcasts. and he was very passionate about um jockeys as as he was a very good jockey himself and he rode with my father so he knew my father and mother very well um so we go back quite a few years um but he he always made you very feel very easy Apart from when i used to go in the morning first thing in the morning and arrive he said hello gazy i don't know where he got that name from (laughs) i used to make a name up for everybody um around the studio But, you know, I always enjoyed working with Richard. We always had a bit of a banter, probably because we came from the same roots, really, him riding with father and and being an elite jump jockey. But um, he's always been a fun, fun chap to work with.
1: What did you think when he moved from the saddle to work for the BBC as a broadcaster? And how good was he as a broadcaster?
3: well i think it was a it was a, a natural progression because i mean uh one thing you could always say about richard was he was he could talk he could talk <laughs> in fact you could say he was full of bullshit for a lot for a lot of time <laughs> i mean he was he was the weighing room's arch bullshitter was richard <laughs> uh but uh and so Quite honestly, I couldn't think of anyone better suited than being a television pundit, because that's what they need.
0: (laughs) It was really interesting, the broadcasting that he was a part of in the, what would you say, the 80s and early 90s, uh, because it was a group of people who I'd known growing up. So it was as if all the people who I used to see in the Lambourne Valley when I was a little girl and my dad was training horses were all suddenly on the telly. It was John Francom, um it was Jay Oaksy, and uh, Richard Pittman. And there was something terribly reassuring about those voices and they were all actually beautiful broadcasters. I thought of them all as jockeys. But if you look back now, you think... They were so polished. Uh, Their balance of humour, slight silliness, profound knowledge, great enthusiasm was absolutely astonishing. But you didn't think of them as broadcasters. It was just like they, they got these lovely, you know, horse blokes to come into the studio and say something about the racing. So it was like... You were going to the races every Saturday with a bunch of friends. And Richard was very much that. He was such a relaxed broadcaster. He was really self-deprecating, which he always was. There was no swagger to him. He wasn't going into studios with a great big, well, do you know what I did in the King George? Or do you remember Pendle? There was none of that. Um, And it, it was exactly the same in real life. So there was that... As a broadcaster, there was that naturalness, enthusiasm, always the sense of humour and just a sense of, I don't know, a good bloke, which is unsurprising because he is a really good bloke.
1: Before the birthday jingles and late on the scene in this podcast is Richard's close friend, Charlie Fennick, With his own interesting take, on the 1973 Grand National.
6: And the other thing that is so interesting to me, Richard Pittman becomes a, for the next 30 some years, he's, everyone knows Richard Pittman. He's a television star of sorts um, and an author. And Richard Pittman gets to be famous because he lost the Grand National. just the same way Dick Francis gets to be famous because he lost the Grand National. Um, I think that's sort of an interesting story to me. And both guys are much more famous because they lost than if they won. Um, there's a winner every year, but there are not many performances like Dick Francis' performance or Richard Pittman's performance in the Grand National. To end this special podcast, a few
1: friends dropped in to wish you a happy birthday, Richard.
4: Hello, Richard. It's Sam Martin, and I just wanted to wish you a very, very happy birthday. Thank you so much for all of your support with my fledgling journalism career, and I really enjoy working with you. Your advice is so valuable to me, and I really hope you have an amazing day.
3: Happy birthday, Richard, I hope you have a, a wonderful day.
4: Richard Pittman, happy birthday, you old devil you. And you're always a bit of a rascal, especially joking around in at the races when we used to do it together many years ago. We had a great mornings, great fun, bit of banter. You're always great fun and, and had always raw material. Love working with you. So have a happy birthday today, Richard. The big Eight O, you got there.
6: I am Honored to wish my dear friend Richard Pittman a happy birthday. I didn't really expect to be wishing him happy birthday in this fashion, but I'm honored to be doing so. Richard and I have been friends for um, twenty plus years, and I'm not sure uh, I don't have many closer friends than Richard. We speak um, at least once a week. Um, often about nothing, but we speak. Um, And I visit England probably twice a year. And um, I now have a daughter living outside of Oxford. So I stay with her often, but virtually every visit, I will spend some time with Richard and Mandy. um, And I love it. Uh, Same bedroom. I even have some clothes I've left there. uh, always for the Cheltenham Festival, um, we stay with them. Um, so I am, um, um, Richard is a wonderful human being. He is a a very kind, thoughtful, um, loyal friend. And um, uh, I wish, I guess this is number 80. For some reason, Richard thinks that's a, a number that you sort of, set a barrier, what you will and won't do after 80. Although I think he's trying to, I don't know what's going on, but there's, there was a talk about having a schooling session and then that got postponed and, um, but it's important that Richard do do school some horses over fences. Um, uh, He's been talking about it, but he also talks about maybe not doing it and maybe not going up to Aintree. I think he didn't go to Aintree last year, and it's the first time maybe in his life. I don't really understand why that has to happen. Um, but it is what it is. So I personally want to wish Richard a, a, a happy birthday and many more, many more to come. I'm so delighted that you asked me,
0: um, because I'd, I'd just love to be able to send out a huge, great, big birthday shout-out to the legendary Richard Pittman. He'll hate me for saying that. Uh, I should think there are very few people who would regard themselves less as a legend. Uh, But he really was, he was of that incredible generation. He was a wonderful man to watch over a fence and he, goodness me, he did know how to meet triumph and tragedy and treat them the same and the fact that he's still here and we can all say happy birthday thanks to the wonders of new technology is a beautiful thing so happy birthday Richard and I hope you have a glorious day.
1: I'd like to thank Sam Martin, Philip Blacker, Gay Kellaway, Charlie Fenwick, Tanya Kindersley and Chris Pitt for their help at short notice with this podcast. It would not have been the same without you all. Happy birthday, Richard. Thanks for all your help over the past two years. Have a fabulous 80th birthday. Happy birthday!
0: Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Pad and Pad. Don't forget, if you like the show, please do leave us a rating and review. Sports Social Podcast Network.